I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves to the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. That's the voice of Allen Ginsberg, reading the famous opening from his poem, Howl. We're not only going to talk about key writers of the Beat Generation today, such as Allen Ginsberg, Philip Whelan, Kenneth Rexroth, we're going to hear their voices as well. John Souter, author of Poets on the Peaks, a book about the Beat Poets and their experiences as fire lookouts in the Northwest in the 1950s, discovered some historic photographs and audio tapes during his research. These materials were in Walter Lehrman's Ohio attic and have not been seen or heard in decades. Lehrman, a retired English professor, attended school in Berkeley in the 1950s, knew these poets, and an exhibit titled Nobody Goes Home Sad is now on display at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art at Utah State University. That exhibit grew out of an idea of showing Souter's contemporary photographs, beat writers, against Lerman's historic photographs, and also features audio excerpts. We're going to hear some of those today. And uh, we are going to be talking a little later in the program with Walter Lerman. Joining us now in studio is uh, John Souter. We'll ask him to tell us some stories about Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, and others, and to contextualize this important period in American cultural history. Uh, John Souter is a photographer and author, and as I mentioned, uh, author of this very interesting book, uh, Poets on the Peaks. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Nice to be here. I'll have you uh, tell me some stories. I had not been aware of that part of the history of the Beat Poets, that uh, some of them were fire lookouts during summers. Uh, yeah, the um, the connection uh, isn't real obvious, but um, uh, Jack Kerouac wrote a book called uh, The Dharma Bums, which... Uh, uh, comes out of his experience uh, as a fire lookout on Desolation Peak. And it's uh, always been right behind on the road in, in sales uh, and popularity. And a lot of people conflate the two books. But uh, there is that that uh, connection between uh, the uh, desire for uh, uh, solitude and contemplation. There's that strand in in Kerouac's uh, life, and then the more uh, uh, frenetic uh, bebop type thing that uh, people generally think of him. We're also joined by uh, Brad Cole, associate dean for special collections and archives at the Merrill Kazir Library at USU. Brad, tell us uh, about some of the events that are that are happening. Oh, sure. Thanks, Tom. Uh, as people may or may not be aware, we've actually acquired uh, John's archives, and so out of that acquisition came this exhibition. And today, this afternoon at 4.30, uh, Dr. Ben Gunsberg's uh, graduate poetry workshop class is uh, going to read a selection of beat poems in the museum at the exhibit, and that's going to be interspersed with some more audio of the original reading in 1956. So we're pretty excited about that. And then on uh, Wednesday at noon during the common hour, John's going to do a, a gallery talk about the exhibit and his process of uh, re, uh, reconstituting these photographs from Walter and a little bit about his, a little bit uh, more in depth than what we're doing today. So. Very good. So we'll, we'll have uh, Brad with us during the conversation as well. Uh, John Suter, I wonder if you'd put into context this, this very interesting period post-war um, 1955. 55. And on the scene come sort of these new style of, of poets, sort of pushing boundaries. In fact, some of these poets got into a slapped with obscenity lawsuits. Well, Howell was uh, a big obs- obscenity suit uh, in uh, 1957. Uh, the poem was first read in 55. Uh, the pictures that we have at the exhibit are from a subsequent reading about five months later. Um, but yeah, the, the period was one of uh, pushing boundaries, and uh, uh, Ginsburg actually welcomed the obscenity suit because uh, the, uh, the, the court case uh, introduced the poem to many thousands more people than, uh, than he would have uh, really been able to reach just by having poetry readings. The, um, the Sixth Gallery poetry reading in October 1955, which kind of blew the top off things, probably only had 75 to 100 people there. 
uh, but word spread from it. And then five months later, there was this other reading, and Walter uh, was there with his camera, uh, made photographs, and they're the pictures that we have at the exhibit. Hmm. So the the names that we're familiar with, Allen Ginsberg, of course, sure. Howell, people know, know Howell, I think. Um, uh, Jack Kerouac, uh, On the Road, and many people were familiar with On the Road and now, other writings. Right. Uh, now, Kerouac did not read at the uh, uh, Sixth Gallery reading, and uh, Ginsburg wanted him to. Actually, he was originally on the bill, but Kerouac was kind of shy, and uh, uh, he didn't want to read, but he, uh, he took up a collection uh, from the people there, uh, bought some jugs of wine, uh, passed that around, and then he sat there on the edge of the stage urging the poets on and, uh, you know, uh, shouting, uh, go, at the end of uh, each line. You know, Ginsburg's uh, line is very long. So as he would reach the end of a line, Kerouac would shout, go, like at a jazz uh, uh, jam session. And at pretty soon, everyone was shouting this at the end of each line. Mm. So, but, but Jack didn't actually read that. He wasn't one of the six gallery poets, but okay. he was a presence. Yeah. So the, these, these beat writers, this was, could you say this is the beginning of the counterculture movement, which flowered then in the, in the 60s? This was, was this pushing yeah. back against something? Uh, I would say definitely it was it was the beginning of, of it. Uh, I mean, uh, Ginsburg certainly uh, you know carried through uh, into into the '60s. Gary Snyder did, uh, uh, Kenneth Rexroth, all of them did. Yeah, I mm. mean it, it was a, a a seed moment or a flashpoint. Mm. Let's hear uh, let's hear some voices here. This is from uh, the Walter Lerman's collection, audio collection from I think from that 1956. From the '56, uh, the famous uh, famous reading. Uh, that evening. So uh, let's hear uh, Philip Whalen. This is Martyrdom of Two Pagans. It's about a little over a minute long. Out on a limb and frantically sawing, the saw teeth go dull and at last wear smooth, leaving us here still throned in the air like the sage in the basket and the one in the jar. Either branch or tree will fall or we'll both drop sleeping a heavenly meal for the animal saints who march continuously round the bowl. A distinction or a difference, I said. Either one a horn on Io's head, a giddy heifer chased by bees. All are immortal, laugh and lie down. Discriminate or perish, he replied, while all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Stay awake, he said, sleep is confusion. My eyelids have grown tea leaves for the pot, brew it strong, defy illusion. The weakened branch snaps off. We join the company of saints, remaining conscious, though dismembered, to the last. The sacred beasts all ate and marched and sang. Love is better than hate. Love is better than hate. Love is better than hate and stronger than hell. For we took our shoes off as we fell. This is from a, f- a famous reading uh, in San Francisco area. This, this, was, this reading was from uh, March 18th, 1956 in Berkeley, five, in, in five Berkeley. months after the, uh, the initial reading. At the initial, you know, the, well, one of the things that's interesting is yeah, the, the Sixth Gallery reading in October uh, 1955, um, no one recorded that. Uh, no one f- uh, even took one photograph there because no one expected it to be anything. Uh, it would just, uh, you know, was a spontaneous event, and then everybody who was there said, "Wow!" You know, they then they realized that something had happened. This uh, recording that we just heard comes from five months later, and that reading in Berkeley in March of 56 was really the first media event, is the way I describe it, uh, of the Beat Generation, because then you had three guys with tape recorders going, uh, a couple of photographers taking pictures. There was a reporter there from the New York Times, uh, uh, Richard Eberthardt, and uh, it just took off from there. So uh, as as these writers became famous... um what did this what did this mean then to you know the person in Salt Lake City Utah or you know out in the out in the interior 
this was this was happening in in Berkeley and other places. What, what did it this took a while mean? to get to uh, uh, Salt Lake, but uh, Salt Lake actually we were just talking about this last night. Uh, there was a magazine that uh, uh, a poetry magazine that came, and this is in the mid '60s now. As you're saying, you know, how did this uh, go into the counterculture? But ten years later, uh, in eastern Idaho, you had a magazine called Wild Dog. Uh, which was very influential, uh, small magazine uh, for the movement. And uh, it was edited and, and published from Salt Lake for, I, I think, uh, three or four issues in the mid-60s. So it did penetrate throughout the country. It took 10 years, uh, but it didn't stop after that. We're talking on the program today uh, with um, uh, photographer and author John Souter. He's going to be presenting a gallery talk uh, later uh, this week. And on the Beat Poets, we have uh, in that exhibit not only photographs, but audio. We're going to be hearing some of that audio on the program today, putting the Beat Generation and the Beat Poets in uh, context and hearing their voices. And you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Love to get your memories of these times and uh, perhaps uh, your the impact the Beat Poets had on you. 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We also have with us Brad Cole, Associate Dean for Special Collections and Archives at Merrill Kazir Library at USU. Before we go to break, uh, Brad, tell us what uh, what the events are for people going to be in the northern Utah area. Okay, uh, this afternoon um, at 4.30 at the Nora Eccles Harrison uh, Museum, we're going to have a uh, Voices of the Beats poetry reading by Dr. Ben Gunsberg's uh, graduate poetry workshop, and the students have uh, selected poems from that period, not necessarily the ones that were read at that reading, and each student's going to read us their selection, and then we're going to intersperse that with some of the audio clips from that 1956 reading, so it should be a pretty fun event. And then on Wednesday, um, we're going to have John give a gallery talk about the exhibit, about his work with the photos, and I should mention there's a receptions following both so excellent so some uh, some opportunity for you to interact as it were with these these uh, beat poets by the way brad you're mentioning before we went on the air uh gary snyder has a utah connection yeah gary snyder was a good friend of tom lyon and when they used to do the uh western writers workshops and things he came here quite often in the summer during the 70s and 80s and uh in the archives, in special collections, we have a couple of big events that he was involved in, and so he kind of has a, a Logan connection, and he's been here, I think, most recently in the 1990s, late 90s. He's mm. done a lot of uh, uh, hiking uh, mm-hmm. in, in the area around here. Tom introduced him to a lot of the country around here. So we'll hear more about uh, Gary Snyder, one of the one of the principal uh, writers of the uh, Beat Generation. And uh, John Suter's doing a, I think you're doing a book on Gary Snyder. I'm, I'm working on a biography of Gary. Yeah, of the readers that we have uh, in, in the exhibit, uh, only uh, Gary and Michael McClure are still alive. Uh, the other guys have uh, died over the years. Uh, also, we'll get into talking about uh, Poets on the Peaks. It's very interesting uh, history of uh, these beat poets. This is before they hit big, I think, before they became famous. They, uh, they were lookouts, fire lookouts in, yeah, in the West. Uh, actually, uh, uh, Philip Whalen, who we just heard, um, uh, literally came down from his fire lookout uh, at Sourdough Mountain uh, in uh, late September of 1955 and basically went right from there right into the uh, Sixth Gallery reading. He had, you know, he had never read any poems in public before. Uh, Ginsburg never read any poems in public before. The only person at that reading who had ever uh, done any uh, poetry in front of uh, a live audience was uh, Kenneth Rexroth, who was the oldest of, of the group. Uh, so uh, it was, uh, yeah, this was all, uh, Poets on the Peaks is prehistory mm-hmm. uh, of, of the beats. Right. It's very interesting history. We'll get into talking about that. And when we come back from the break, we'll uh, hear from uh, um, Walter Lehrman, uh, from whose collection uh, some of this exhibit is, is taken. And Walter Lehrman was there. He was going to grad school at Berkeley, and uh, he knew some of these poets. We'll get some of that history from Walter Lehrman following the break. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting West Side Story in the Ellen Echoes Theater, featuring the Bernstein and Sondheim score, including Tonight, America, I Feel Pretty, and Somewhere, Wednesday, March 5th, information at cachearts.org, or 435-752-2206. Neil Harbison is an artist who's never seen a color, but with some help from technology, Neil can hear color. So it goes orange, then yellow, then green, then turquoise, blue, and violet is the highest. And he can perceive many more colors than you or me. Stretching our senses, that's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Tune in today every Monday at 10 o'clock in the mornings. Thanks for tuning in today to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the beat poets, uh, such uh, famous names as Allen Ginsberg and Philip Whalen, Kenneth Rexroth, uh, uh, Gary Snyder, Jack Kerouac. We're familiar with some of their works. We're g- going behind the scenes. That's an opportunity you have. If you're in the northern Utah area, on the campus of Utah State University, there is an exhibition going on uh, into April, I believe, Brad Cole. Only till March. Till March. Yeah, so this so. is urgent that you get over there. Uh, tell us what the events are. are. Uh, this afternoon we have a uh, beat uh, voices of the beat poetry reading by uh, Dr. Ben Gunsberg's uh, poetry workshop class. Uh, USU students will uh, read a selection of uh, poets from that era, interspersed with uh, clips of the uh, 1956 reading, and John will be participating in that. And then on Wednesday, John will give a more formal gallery talk at noon during the common hour, and uh, receptions follow both. So, Those are some opportunities uh, for, for people in, in the uh, Logan area, or perhaps you, you know, if you're close enough, you can travel uh, to, to catch those events. Brad Cole is the Associate Dean for Special Collections and Archives at the Maracas Air Library at USU. He joins us. And photographer and author John Souter uh, is with us as well. John, I wonder if you tell us a little more about... Um, about this generation, this, of course, would have been World War II generation or maybe just a little bit younger. Some of these gentlemen, I guess, would have, I don't know, been in the armed forces during during the war, and some of them a little younger. But then the war years end, and there's this bubbling up of, I don't know, a, a new generation wanting its voice heard. Uh, is that what was happening here? Well, uh, it was a... Uh, um the beat generation, of course, uh, you know, to define it, uh, it's the um, the poets and, and writers of the uh, post-war generation, uh, you know, beginning uh, 1954, 55, 56. Um, but uh, they were influenced by uh, uh, the uh, veterans. But, of course, the, the war itself was, was the, uh, you know, People facing uh, nuclear annihilation. I mean, that was a, a, a gigantic uh, uh, fear of uh, Allen Ginsberg in, in particular. But uh, for all of them, I mean, uh, that was uh, you know, how do you uh, live your life in the uh, in the shadow of this uh, uh, ultimate destruction? So, um, you know, interestingly, uh, when I went to Desolation Peak, where uh, Kerouac spent uh, his uh, summer of uh, 1956, and from which the the book uh, The Dharma Bombs comes. Uh, in the fire lookout, there were these pads uh, where you were to identify the aircraft that were uh, you know coming, and you know they had these uh, sort of uh, silhouettes of bombers. And uh, the fire lookouts were not only supposed to look for forest fires, but for a possible attack from the Russians. And uh, uh, Kerouac used to just tear these things up and, and, and roll uh, his uh, cigarettes with them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about some of the, the people involved. Allen Ginsberg. You'll hear later, as we hear from Walter Lehrman, that you know sometimes he would disrobe, go around naked at parties and such. But you were telling me before the, the break, he, he lived a double life. Well, I, I, I don't know if it was so much a double life. He was conflicted, you know, conflicted guy. I mean, he was uh, trying to uh, find his way. I mean, ha- having to make a living. He worked for, for a while as a, um, a marketing uh, analyst um, and went to work every day in a suit and tie. Uh, but uh, he was also uh, a poet and uh, 
you know, was trying to live the poetic life, but he was uh, uh, he was also conflicted, uh, you know, as far as his uh, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, he was he, he wasn't sure if he was gay, if he was straight, or somewhere in between. He d- he didn't know, so he had a very um, uh, varied sex life. But he would, yeah, he would uh, just take his clothes off because he, you know, he wanted uh, to get this person out there. But yeah, he was very shocking. He would, uh, you know, uh, he and uh, Peter Orlovsky uh, would just take their clothes off at a party. <laughs> that kind of, uh, and actually, you know, the first time I saw Allen Ginsberg was 10 years later in 1966 when I was a student at Syracuse University. And he and um, uh Peter Orlovsky came, and they did that on stage uh, at poetry reading at Syracuse 10 years later. Just took their clothes off, blew everybody's minds. Did you want to be provocative, or what, what were they trying to do? Uh, well, you know, uh, they just wanted to uh, not have anything between them, their audience, and this was just an extreme way of showing it. Mm. Kerouac, uh, apparently from all accounts, was, um, was kind of moody. Yeah, he didn't like to take his clothes off. No, no. <laughs> and so what you get in On the Road and, and some other books, that you know, that character was often not what you got with, with Jack Kerouac. He would, he would be no, kind of silent. And... Yeah, uh, Kerouac had a very strong uh, need for uh, solitude and, and contemplation. So uh, Fire Lookout, that'd be a good, yeah, good job that's, for him. That's, that was perfect for him. Although, uh, again, you know, the conflict, when he got there— uh, he was there a long time, 63 days, and, and uh, Desolation Peak is a long way from the nearest road. It's an 18-mile hike, uh, and he didn't see another person for 63 days. Hmm. Uh, Gary Snyder, um, he, uh, in your book, I read that at one point he went into the office. They were looking for fire lookouts. He said, I want the most remote. <laughs> yeah. The most remote one. They were happy to accommodate. Yep. <laughs> Uh, to send somebody up there. They thought he was crazy, I guess. Well, uh, Gary uh, already had a background of mountaineering. I mean, he had at that point uh, uh, done ascents on many of the major snow peaks in the Northwest. So he was, you know, a, a technical climber, and he'd been up at those altitudes and, and knew mountains very well. So, so yeah, he told them that uh, he wanted the most remote, the most difficult of access, uh, and highest uh, peak that they had. Uh, that 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 particular fire lookout's gone now. Hmm. So Kerouac had a need for solitude. What uh, Gary Snyder, for example, what was he doing up there? Uh, Gary Gary uh, also had the same thing going with um, you know a need for solitude and contemplation, but also uh, a very gregarious uh, guy who uh, loved pranks and parties, and and you know is really the most social person I've ever met. I mean, in his archive, uh, there's over 100,000 pieces of correspondence. Uh, and his network of people, uh, you know, I, I've uh, done interviews with uh, probably 100 people and just barely scratched the surface of his social network. Hmm. One of the most striking parts of the book, um, it, it was, it's kind of a sad uh, passage. Uh, sort of a sad end to the friendship between Kerouac and Snyder. Kerouac uh, tries, you know, at, especially after Dharma Bumps, mm-hmm. uh, which he'd written about Gary Snyder, right? Yeah. Um, tries it, 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 less and less contact back from Gary Snyder, and, and eventually he writes to other friends, you write in your book, that uh, I, I guess Gary's done with me. Well, um, I, you know, Ker- Kerouac's alcoholism uh, drove a wedge uh between not only between uh, Gary and, and him, but uh, with all of his friends. I mean, it eventually isolated him and, and destroyed him the way it does w- with everyone. But uh, that was uh, essentially the problem. But uh, uh, as I said before, uh, Kerouac's portrayal of Gary in the Dharma Bums um, uh, became a, a sort of an albatross around Gary's neck, uh, you know, having to um, to be introduced everywhere he went as, and here's Jaffe Ryder, uh, got old after a while. And, um, uh, you know, so he, I, I think, had some resentment there. Uh, you know, it was, Kerouac put Gary on the literary map with that portrayal, uh, you know, 
publishers began asking Gary for his poems after that. Um, but obviously, uh, Gary succeeded on his own from there. And, uh, you know, after 10 years or so, wanted to be done with that. Uh, but he, he felt, felt boxed in. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, Gary's uh, beat generation period was really very uh, short. So, you know, he, he reacted negatively to being lumped in uh, as a, a beat writer for the rest of his life. Right. He he got into Buddhism. In fact, he was instrumental in in introducing Buddhism yes. to, to America. Absolutely. Yeah, he was one of the first uh, Americans, first Westerners uh, to, uh, to go to Japan after uh, the Second World War when the occupation ended. Uh, he went to Japan uh, and uh, got into Rinzai Zen training in Kyoto uh, for 15 years. Uh, he made a couple of trips back to the U.S., but essentially he was in Japan for 15 years, one of the first Americans to uh, go through that and and then gradually, through his writings, uh, introduced it, uh, Buddhism um, and helped. I wouldn't say he didn't do it single-handedly. There were a lot of other uh, streams uh, of the religion coming in, but he was certainly instrumental in popularizing Buddhism in this country. Another one of these writers, Philip Whelan, uh, became a Buddhist, I don't know what you call it, Buddhist abbot? Or? Um, a Buddhist priest. Buddhist priest, uh, yeah. And he was the abbot of the Hartford Street Zen Center. Yeah. There, there's a picture in your book, very, very nice picture of him, shaved head and, you know, oh, yeah. very, yeah. very nice uh, looking gentleman. Brad Cole, I don't know if you did you interact with Gary Snyder when he was would come out. Uh, no, summers actually, it huh? was uh, prior to my uh, yeah. living in Logan, so I just know that he was here, and that's about it. So, so when uh, Tom Lyon would invite him out for writers' workshops and mm-hmm. such, what what was he from the special collections you've looked at? He was just doing general writing. Was it Buddhism? Yeah, I think was it he, back uh, in the... just general writings? The one that I remember quite a bit is they did a big uh, symposium here on the Kaparowitz coal fields on the Kaparowitz Plateau, and they actually had a sort of a debate on that in, I think, the 1970s, and they actually had 8,000 people in the spectrum for that event when people were concerned about, you know, ripping up the plateau for coal mining, and that's the one. We actually have a audio tape of that event, and there was, I think, Dick Gregory and then members from the coal company there, and so it's quite a striking event. Interesting. Tell us again the, the events, and then we want to hear from Walter Lerman. Okay. The events are to be, the first event is today at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, and it's going to be a uh, called Voices of the Beats, uh, Ben Gunsberg's uh, graduate poetry workshop class. is going to read a selection of uh, poems from that 1950 period from the authors of the uh, gallery readings, and those are going to be interspersed with uh, clips of... Uh, the original reading, and John's actually going to introduce the audio clips, so put a little context to that. And then, then on Wednesday there'll be a gallery talk, also at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art at noon during the common hour, and we have receptions following both. So, so that's Brad Cole, associate dean for special collections and archives, America's Library at USU. He joins us, uh, and photographer and author John Souter is with us. His very interesting book is Poets on the Peaks. This is uh, several of these beat writers who uh, spent some summers up as fire, fire lookouts. Uh, by the way, this book has become a manual of sorts for, for people who are fans of Kerouac or Snyder and who want to go to the places where these men were. Yeah, I, it, I uh, still get uh, uh, emails and letters from people from uh, uh, India, Sweden, uh, yeah, at least once a month saying, how do I get to uh, Desolation Peaks? <laughs> right. Yeah. And and this is uh, are those places administered by the Park Service. Is that where National Park Service? Na- National yeah. Park Service. And they're, 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 they're okay with visitors coming. I guess they're they're inviting people to come. Well, no, you can't uh, uh, stay in those fire lookouts mm. because they're uh, they're still functioning as mm. fire lookouts. So they'll have a, a lookout there for the uh, the whole uh, fire season. But there's a campsite. Uh, there's a couple campsites on on the mountain, but I think that the appeal is that um, um, you know solitude and quiet, just plain old peace and quiet, are becoming so much harder to come by in, in the society. That the idea of uh, going to a place where you can have total quiet 
and and uh, that kind of solitude. Uh, it's very rare now, uh, but there's a strong need for it. Uh, interestingly, when I spent time there, um, you know, there were no cell phones. Uh, I mean, there were cell phones. There wasn't good uh, reception. Uh, but I remember some kids coming up uh, saying, you know, looking around the cabin and saying, there's no television here. <laughs> well, uh, but now, of course, there, there could be. I mean, people could take up uh, their iPads or whatever. And uh, so I think that even in those places now, uh, it's, it's not as quiet as it was. And um, Dharma Bums was based on experiences Kerouac had while he was a fire lookout. Right, right. Let's hear, uh, let's, let's get to, uh, I don't want to neglect uh, Walter Lehrman, a uh, very interesting gentleman, retired English professor at this point, lives in Ohio. Akron, Ohio. And that's where I reached him um, recently. And uh, he was there. He was there at the, the, the some of these famous events. So we want to hear from him. Uh, so here is uh, Walter Lerman. By the way, uh, some of these photographs and, and audio materials that you can see in this exhibition at Utah State University come from, from Walter Lerman's uh, uh, collection, you might say. And we'll talk a little bit about this following uh, my conversation with, uh, with Walter Lerman. So I understand you're a native New Yorker, grew up in the Bronx, born in 1925, so that puts you, you know, the contemporary of Allen Ginsberg, Philip Whalen, some of the other writers. You ended up in Berkeley for graduate school. What, what did you go to Berkeley for? Um, I was uh, offered a teaching assistantship after I graduated from Columbia. So I went out to Berkeley. Uh, my father lived in San Francisco at the time, so that was an easy decision. So what was Berkeley like in the, in the early 50s? You got there in 52. Well, it wasn't as uh, crazy as it got to be a few years later. It was very pleasant. The uh, beat poets sort of um, shook things up among a, a relatively small group, uh, but still they had an effect on the way people were thinking and behaving. So you're you're studying Elizabethan drama, I guess, during the day, but uh, are you going out at night experiencing some of this other poetry? Yes, in a way, you could put it in that way. Uh, it was more or less accidental that I uh, got to know some of those guys. Uh, my wife, when she was younger, had dated Kerouac briefly in New York, and uh, we didn't know that he was coming out to Berkeley uh, with Allen Ginsberg. But the way it happened, we had become friends with Gary Snyder, who was a student at, at Berkeley. And uh, we didn't know him very much as an uh, oriental expert, but we gradually got to know him. And uh, one day he informed us that a couple of New York poets were coming to Berkeley. And it turned out that they were Jack and uh, Alan. And since my wife already knew both of them from New York, uh, it was easy to have them over for dinner sometimes and go to their readings. And that's the the way it all happened, all, all started. Hmm, interesting. Tell me uh, about Allen Ginsberg. You had some, I guess, some uh, cultural connections. You guys were both from the New York area, both Jewish, both sons of Russian immigrants, both Columbia students in the 1940s. Uh, t- give me some personal recollections of Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> he was an extremely uh, pleasant person with a lot of uh, good feeling about him. He, he liked people. He liked to party. He acted rather unusual ways, though, at some parties. He would sometimes get totally undressed. So he had that crazy streak. But otherwise, I'd say he was a very gentle, open man who uh, was willing to talk to anybody about anything. Uh, Jack Kerouac was quite different. Uh, he was uh, more silent and glum about Alan. He appeared frequently at uh, local parties where he would uh, act out. It was as if he had no uh, superego. He just went along with his feelings. 
acted on them. Yeah. What What did you think when uh, when you first heard Howl? What did What did you think of of that work? Oh, well, I was blown away. It was a tremendous experience. I had known nothing really about his life. I had heard none of his poetry before, and when he read Howl, everybody was extremely excited and bravo and you know cheers. Really, really made a great impact. Because he had an excellent dramatic flair when he read it in person. I wonder, uh, could you tell me about the the famous uh, Six Gallery reading? This is October 1955, a small art space in Marina District. Uh, I wondered if you were there? Yes, I was. And this is where uh, Ginsburg uh, first read uh, part of Howell. The estimate is uh, 75 to up 250 people. What was your estimate? Uh, How many people were there? That's very difficult. I don't think there were as many as 250, probably less than 100. Hmm. What are your recollections? What, what do you remember best? Uh, the uh, sixth gallery reading is hazy in my memory, but I remember the cheers and excitement, uh, but it was electric, definitely. Now, after the event... Everyone wanted to say that they'd been there. I guess it's kind of like Woodstock. Uh, but, yeah, and remember, he wasn't the only person reading his poetry that night. The others in the group, uh, Rex Roth and uh, McClure and Whalen and Gary Snyder, were all reading. But Alan definitely became the center of everyone's attention, and that's the way it was. Could you tell us about the Berkeley reading. This is a very famous March 1956. Yes, uh, that was was the one that I took photographs at and also made a recording. The the crowd was not terribly large, but all the people who were there were were already familiar with Howell because many of them had gone to the Sixth Gallery reading in Berkeley was a rather small uh, facility. The place was crowded. There was a lot of noise, a lot of shouting back and forth. There was jugs of wine being passed around. And the, the whole mood was pleasurable. And of course, Alan went last so that, you know, Howell would make its impact. And the, in, in the crowd, People who were uh, anticipating certain lines and would sort of join in when Alan got to that part of the reading. You understand what I mean? Yes. So everybody was happy and very, very impressed by Alan. The others didn't make anywhere near the same degree of excitement. Did you ever think that those photographs that you shot that day would end up being in an an exhibit? Oh, oh, no, no, by no means. And in fact, I could have bought copies of the first edition of Howell. Oh, boy. (laughs) And I I didn't. (laughs) Uh, I had no notion that there would be value, a monetary value in any of this stuff. Hmm. Uh, I was I was doing a lot of photography at the time, and I, it was perfectly uh, natural that I would bring my camera and my tape recorder because uh, just out of a general sense of wanting to uh, catch, catch it, uh, so in the future, you know, people would know about it. But I didn't really, I was doing a lot of photography. So it wasn't as if I made a special effort in this particular case. I didn't see it as a very big deal. But, and I'm surprised that it had, it's becoming a, a big deal. Yeah. I, I wonder if we could talk a bit about Jack Kerouac a little more. Um, your Portraits of Kerouac are some of the best that uh, have ever been made. 
Why did why do you think Kerouac felt so comfortable around you? Um, well, one connection was through my wife, with whom he had had a brief love affair when she was quite young, and um, he I, I think he felt a kind of uh, that there was some connection between us. He was always uh, he was rather quiet. Uh, he drank a lot of wine and would often. Uh, keep to himself, or, or at least make himself obscure. Uh, at the at the Berkeley reading, he sat in the back. I remember and didn't say a word. I think people hardly knew he was there. I never got to know him very well. It was just uh, we were two guys who happened to have a connection. He tended not not to offer intimacy in our relationship, but we connected uh, somehow. What What did you think about on the road? Um, I don't like it. Oh, you don't you don't like it? Why? Well, you got to remember, I, I'm an English major. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, from from a standpoint of of style and content and message, uh, I don't think it's very important, but it certainly reflects the age, and and it's, I think, a pretty accurate description of Jack's own life and attitudes and experiences, but uh, as a piece of literature, I, I wouldn't choose it as a book to teach in a, in a lit class. Mm. Do you have any memories or stories of some of the other writers, uh, Snyder, Whalen, McClure, Rex Roth? The only one I really knew fairly well was Gary. Uh, he, he was a most interesting person. He is. When we first met him, he was doing a lot of uh, guitar playing and singing IWW's songs, and he was pretty good both at singing and playing. He was very much involved in studying Oriental culture and language. You know, one summer he went to the mountain watch in the Cascades, and he brought with him a book of Chinese literature and a Chinese dictionary and spent most of the summer learning Chinese. He was very disciplined, and he was self-sufficient, competent, interesting in, with his stories and songs, and uh, and extremely bright. Of, of all of them, I think he was the most learned. Uh, may not have been the best poet. His uh, poetry was all right, but it wasn't forceful like Allen's. Did did you keep in touch with uh, any of the writers? Uh, with Phil Whalen, also a very nice person, truly good guy. His poetry is kind of wild. Uh, I only understand about half of it. But we kept in touch very briefly. After Ginny and I left Berkeley, came to Akron, uh, I visited him years later when he was in a uh, some sort of Buddhist hospice, I guess it was. I'm not sure. He was quite sick. And I did visit Gary once uh, in 1980, when he had moved to, uh, to the Sierras. And I did occasionally, well, I did run into Alan uh, in New York, in, in, in Manhattan. So it was a wild, I don't know, not always, but often wild stuff, you know, uh, acting out uh, on all their parts. But that's only natural, I think, exceptional. But Berkeley was a great place to be. Well, those are some great memories and uh, uh, some great information. And congratulations on the exhibit that will be ongoing at Utah State University. Okay, Tom. Well, it's good to talk to you. 
That's my conversation, recent conversation with Walter Lehrman, who's a retired English professor. He was there. He was going to grad school at Berkeley in the 1950s, knew many of these beat poets. We just have a couple of minutes left here uh, to give us time to, to go out with another portion from Allen Ginsberg's uh, Howell. Um, I wonder, last word from you, John Souter, what are, what are you uh, most looking forward to with this exhibition? What, what do you hope people get out of it? Well, I, I think that uh, uh, having Walter's uh, pictures uh, exhibited finally uh, is uh, really going to be a great thing. It's taken five years to uh, restore these pictures digitally because they uh, suffered a lot of damage over the years uh, of storage. But uh, to suddenly have these uh, all brought out together uh, along with the recordings that he's done and uh, the uh, uh, chapbooks and, and magazines from the special collections uh, is going to just make a great, uh, a great exhibit. So. And a very interesting book, Poets on the Peaks. This is a book about uh, several of the beat writers and their time as fire lookouts in in the West. So that's that's. I'm not sure if that's still in, uh, available, but uh, it's uh, it's out of print, but okay. it's uh, available through resellers uh, online. Great. And uh, I have a copy from Special Collections. So thanks, thanks, Brad, for the for the loan. Very interesting. And you can actually go to these places today, right, where these where the beat poets were. So uh, briefly, Brad Cole, tell us uh, w- the details of this exhibition and, and surrounding events. Okay, like uh, we've talked about, it's a uh, photo exhibition of John's modern photos paired with uh, Walter's uh, historic photos. And it's a collection that we're in the process of acquiring for special collections, so it'll be available for research eventually when we get it all processed and opened, along with uh, John's archives and interviews of uh, people he interviewed putting the book together. Uh, again, this afternoon at the Nora Eccles Harrison Art Museum, Museum of Art, will be the uh, Voices of the Beat reading. Graduate students from uh, Ben Gunsberg's Poetry Workshop will read a selection of poems from the era and interspersed with uh, audio clips from the 56 reading. And then on Wednesday, John will do a more formal gallery talk about the exhibition, and we hope people come out to both those events. And we do have receptions following both of them, so... We'll look forward to those events. Um, my guests have been uh, photographer and author John Suter. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Tom. And Brad Cole, who's Associate Dean for Special Collections and Archives at the Merrill Kazir Library at USU. Thanks. Thanks. We are going to go out with um, the voice of one of these poets, Allen Ginsberg. This is from his uh, poem, Howl. My thanks to uh, producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser. And thanks for listening today. Here's Allen Ginsberg to take us out. I'm with you in Rockland where you're madder than I am. I'm with you in Rockland where you must feel very strange. I'm with you in Rockland where you imitate the shade of my mother. I'm with you in Rockland where you've murdered your 12 secretaries. I'm with you in Rockland where you laugh at this invisible humor. I'm with you in Rockland where we are great writers on the same dreadful typewriter. I'm with you in Rockland where your condition has become serious and is reported on the radio. I'm with you in Rockland where the faculties of the skull no longer admit the worms of the senses. I'm with you in Rockland where you drink the tea of the breasts of the spinsters of Utica. I'm with you in Rockland where you pun on the bodies of your nurses, the harpies of the Bronx. I'm with you in Rockland where you scream in a straitjacket that you're losing the game of the actual ping pong of the abyss. I'm with you in Rockland where you bang on the catatonic piano. The soul is innocent and immortal. It should never die ungodly in an armed madhouse. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and a Crumb Brothers artisan bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering 100% whole grain raisin, oatmeal, date, and millet breads. Did you know that preschool children already have an intuitive number sense that relates to their later performance in school math? Research suggests that ways to improve this early number sense may include having children play multi-sensory computer games. This type of play may eventually help boost early math education in the U.S. 
Did You Know That? is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, this is Mark Larez Casanova from the Utah Master Naturalist Program at Utah State University Extension. The Colorado River Compact, written into law almost a century ago, helped ensure our survival in Utah today. We all know that Utah is a dry state. In fact, Utah is the second driest state in the country, with only Nevada being drier. Our average annual precipitation varies widely, from as low as a few inches a year near St. George to as high as 60 inches in the mountains. Since most of our water comes from mountain snow, we rely on rivers and streams to deliver it to us. The Colorado and Green Rivers, the largest in Utah, carry water from the Rocky, Wasatch, and Uinta mountain ranges throughout Utah and the Intermountain West. The Colorado River Basin, the area of land from which the Colorado River and its tributaries drain water, covers the eastern half of Utah, along with the western half of Colorado, almost all of Arizona, and small parts of Wyoming, New Mexico, Nevada, and California. Each of these states has a dry climate, and water from the Colorado has always been in high demand. In the heavily populated eastern United States, the right to use water often adheres to riparian doctrine, in which water is shared by all those who live along the body of water. However, the western U.S. was settled at different times, and populations are more sparse. So water rights generally follow the doctrine of prior appropriation. That is, water is set aside for whoever is able to use it first. The only problem is that California was developed earlier than the other states in the basin, and therefore, as the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1922, was legally entitled to more than their fair share of the water. In this case, Western water law simply didn't work. So all seven states in the Colorado River Basin sat down together with the U.S. government and negotiated the Colorado River Compact to ensure that Utah and the upper basin states were entitled to as much water each year as California and the lower basin states that were growing at a faster rate. So there you have it, one key piece of legislation helping to save civilization in Utah. Except, well, the amounts of water each state is entitled to was based on an abnormally high year of water flow. And so, there often isn't enough water to go around. And Mexico doesn't seem to get much water at all. Okay, so the Colorado River Compact isn't perfect, but it's important. To ensure that we all truly have enough water, it will take compromise, conservation, and a whole lot of common sense. For Wild About Utah, I'm Mark Larez Casanova. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.